It's Midday Magazine for Wednesday, November 22nd. I'm Shelby Herbert. A child is dead and at least five people are missing after a large landslide destroyed three houses and covered the highway about 11 miles outside of Wrangell on Monday night. One woman was rescued from the landslide yesterday morning and was reported by state officials in good condition and receiving medical care by yesterday afternoon. Alaska State Trooper spokesperson Austin McDaniel said yesterday that troopers and other local, state, and federal crews are still looking for survivors. This is very much still a search and rescue operation. Um, We are uh, approaching it with that uh, in mind. And I know that all of our uh, teams on the ground, both volunteer, are looking at it with the same Um, with the same lens. The names of the girl who died, the survivor, and the missing have not been made public. Search and rescue efforts resumed yesterday afternoon after geologists determined parts of the slide area were stable. But state geologist Barrett Salisbury said the rainy forecast means that stable areas could still shift more. It looks like there's a lot of moisture in the next week, uh, and that's not a great forecast for being in and around that area. The slide, which was about 500 feet wide where it crossed the road, also cut power to many homes and forced evacuations along the Zimovia Highway. Local officials have urged between 20 and 30 people living near the landslide to evacuate the area with the help of local fire department and water taxis. Evacuees are being housed in local hotels. Yesterday, the National Weather Service in Juneau said that just over three inches of rain fell in Wrangell during a 24-hour period beginning early Monday morning. Geologist Barrett Salisbury says heavy rains can increase the already present risk of landslides in southeast Alaska. It's virtually impossible to predict this kind of catastrophe, but we do know that the risk of landslides, specifically this type of landslide known as a debris flow, The risk of a debris flow is present throughout southeast Alaska where we have steep slopes and we know that heavy rainfall or rapid snow melt or otherwise putting lots of moisture into the soil makes those risks greater. Salisbury says people in the area should be on high alert for sounds of rumbling or cracking trees, new springs of water or physical changes to houses or property like swelling ground or shifting porches or foundations. Zimovia Highway has been closed to the public from six mile on, with the exception of local access. There's no timeline for when people who live beyond the landslide might be able to return home. There's also no update on when power might be restored for approximately 75 homes without power between Nine Mile and the end of Wrangell's Highway. Wrangell Public Schools are canceled today. Evergreen Elementary School will be open between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. to offer support services. There has been an outpouring of community support from local organizations, congregations, and businesses. Donations for evacuees are being accepted by Wrangell Parks and Recreation at the Community Center. Governor Mike Dunleavy issued a state disaster declaration yesterday morning to support the response and recovery. Any missing persons unaccounted for in the slide area should be reported to Wrangell Police at 907-874-3304. 
Inclement weather in southeast Alaska knocked out six U.S. Coast Guard rescue VHF towers Monday night. That means the Coast Guard may not be able to pick up calls for distress on VHF Channel 16 in certain parts of southern southeast. Four towers located on Zarembo, Gravina, Suquan, and Duke Islands are back up and running, but the Coast Guard hasn't declared them fully capable yet. The towers on Mount MacArthur and Mount Robber Baron are still out of commission. Aaron Hankins is the Director of Fire and Emergency Medical Services in Petersburg. He is helping coordinate the relief effort for a deadly landslide Monday night in Wrangell. Hankins cautions mariners in the region to avoid Sumner and Zamovia Straits in order to clear the area for ongoing rescue operations. He says there's also dangerous debris from the landslide floating in the water, which may not be immediately visible below the surface. That flotsam can damage or even sink small vessels. Due to the potential gaps in coverage, the Coast Guard is relying on mariners and emergency responders in the region to notify them of mariners in need of help by calling 907-463-2980 if they hear an unanswered distress call on VHF Channel 16. Coast Guard Sector Southeast Alaska will post status updates on the disabled Southeast VHF radio towers online at homeport.uscg.mil. Petersburg police are recommending businesses increase their security measures after a series of burglaries in downtown Petersburg over the last month. KFSK's Hannah Flora reports. Petersburg Police Chief Jim Kerr confirmed that the department is actively investigating burglaries at four businesses. The first target was El Zarape Restaurant, which was hit about a month ago. A few days later, the 420, a marijuana dispensary on Main Street, was also burglarized. Jason Miller manages the shop. He says when he came in that morning, the cash door had been pried open. We do keep our $300 daily for the next day in there. We've never had much of an issue because we're in Petersburg. <laughs> Miller already had security lights installed at the 420, but he's added more, and he has lots of security cameras. He says he hopes the footage he turned over to police will help. You can see them pretty well. Miller says that three to $4,000 worth of goods were missing from the shelves, and there was a couple thousand dollars worth of damage to the building as well. Three separate doors had been pried open to break into the business. Miller says his insurance will cover the damages, but he has other concerns. For me, it makes a worry about not just myself, but my employees that are here. I got to worry about them. Jim Floyd manages Hammer and Week on Hardware. He says that while the business hasn't been hit, they're taking extra precautions. We obviously don't leave cash laying around because that seems to be what they're after from the rumors on the street. It's not easily accessible for anybody, including ourselves. And he shares some of Miller's concerns. A lot of the efforts I did weren't just to secure our property, but it was to protect our employees. A week or so after the 420 burglary, someone broke into the Petersburg Moose Lodge. Security camera footage shows one person looking for cash. That footage has been turned over to the Petersburg Police Department as well. Most recently, employees at Blomsterhus, a flower and gift shop on Main Street, arrived at work to find that their cash register had been pried open. Police are investigating the incident separately, but Police Chief Kerr says there are similarities. Each burglary happened after hours, and each seemed to target cash. Kerr recommends some simple precautions for business owners. When the businesses close up their till at night, just leave the till open. 
with all the money out and set the set the cash drawer right there on top so that if you look in, you can actually see that there's nothing there. He says that if anyone has questions about the security of their business or home, officers are happy to come by and make recommendations. I mean, we're willing to go there and let share our experience with the business owner or homeowner, whoever it might be, to help them out. Kerr declined to comment on a timeline for the investigations. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. An emergency subsistence hunt held in Cake at the start of the COVID pandemic has been found to be lawful over obje- the objections of the state. The ruling by the United States District Court of Alaska earlier this month further strengthens the federal government's position in subsistence management in Alaska. Robert Wolsey reports from Sitka. The hunt was authorized by the Federal Subsistence Board and managed by the Forest Service, Petersburg Ranger District, after a request from the tribal government of Cake. The OVK, or Organized Village of Cake, petitioned the Federal Subsistence Board in 2020, shortly after nationwide lockdowns and supply chain disruptions threatened the food supply to the 500 residents of the community located on Kupranoff Island, about 50 miles east of Sitka. Hunters designated by OVK were allowed to take two bull moose and five male Sitka black-tailed deer per month outside of the state-regulated seasons for these animals. Meat from the harvest was distributed to 135 households in Cake. The hunt prompted a swift legal response from the state, essentially a new challenge to a three-decade-old conflict in Alaska. The discrepancy between the 1980 Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, or ANILCA, which in the simplest terms grants a rural subsistence priority, and the Alaska Constitution, which does not. The November 3rd ruling by U.S. District Court Judge Sharon Gleason reaffirmed that when push comes to shove, federal laws supersede state laws in matters of subsistence. In its initial lawsuit against the cake hunt, the state argued that nowhere in ANILCA is there language authorizing emergency subsistence hunts and that the Federal Subsistence Board lacked the authority to create them. The state took the issue as far as the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals this past March and even claimed victory when the justices rejected the United States' claim that the question was moot and remanded the matter to the Alaska District Court for review. U.S. District Court Judge Sharon Gleason, however, concluded that ANILCA gave the U.S. Secretary of Interior broad discretionary power to authorize emergency hunts, even though they're not strictly spelled out. She wrote, The court finds that the secretary's regulation, which authorizes the Federal Subsistence Board to open public lands for the taking of fish and wildlife for public safety reasons, is valid as applied to the emergency hunt that the board authorized for cake. And Judge Gleason lets the state know they should have seen it coming. Citing one of the first major subsistence cases following ANILCA, Katie John, Gleason wrote, Congress was clear in ANILCA's text that enforcement of the subsistence priority would entail altering the traditional balance of power between the state of Alaska and the federal government. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. The Alaska chapter of Planned Parenthood has filed a lawsuit against the state to challenge a 50-year-old law that restricts certain health care workers from providing abortions. 
Superior Court Judge Josie Garten heard arguments last week in, at an Anchorage courtroom. Rachel Cassandra was there and has this story. The law in question says that in Alaska, only doctors can perform abortions, not advanced practice clinicians such as physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and nurse midwives. Non-physicians aren't allowed to prescribe pills to induce abortion either. Planned Parenthood's Alaska chapter argues that the restriction limits access to abortion. Camilla Vega is an attorney for Planned Parenthood. All major medical organizations agree that these providers can provide this care, and Alaska restricts it. And you can't do that in a state where there's a fundamental right to abortion. And so that's why we brought this case. 22 states allow advanced practice clinicians to provide abortions. At the moment, Alaska is among them. That's because two years ago, a state judge temporarily blocked the 1970s-era restriction. So while the case is pending, a wider range of clinicians is allowed to provide medication abortions. But if the law isn't overturned, Vega says patients will have to go back to vying for scarce appointments with doctors. Or if they live in a rural area, they might have to wait to travel to a city. And Vega says timeliness is crucial for people who decide to end a pregnancy. When people need abortions, they need them when they need them. And they don't need them based on a physician's schedule. Vega says not everyone is impacted by this law equally. Some people are more vulnerable to it interfering with their lives. It's low-income people, it's people who have caregiving responsibilities, who have inflexible work schedules, who have issues with transportation, who are victims of intimate partner violence. It's young people who may not want their parents to know about their decision. Margaret Payton Walsh is an attorney for the state of Alaska and defended the case. She says Planned Parenthood did not show in court that this law is a burden to patients. They presented no data that abortion rates went up after the provider restriction was temporarily lifted. Nor, she says, did they have any testimony from pregnant women who had trouble scheduling an abortion when the restriction was in effect. The inability to quantify it all makes the whole case completely speculative. It's all just based on this sort of hypothetical feeling about what must have happened because of how things are. But the reality is that women are delayed in accessing abortion care for a variety of reasons. Peyton Walsh says that people do experience barriers to medical services all the time, but not necessarily because of this law. A lot of them are to do with the personal realities of their life, that trying to get time off work or childcare. Those problems exist regardless of who's providing the care. And to show that the law creates a problem, they have to show that the law, the lack of physician appointment availability, is what caused delay. And she says, without clear proof the law is a burden, it's not something the courts should decide. Who gets to provide what service, licensing, those sorts of rules, those are legislative decisions, they're policy decisions, and they're not decisions that should be made by courts of law in the absence of evidence that there is a burden on a constitutional right. Judge Garten's decision is likely months away. Whichever side loses could appeal to the Alaska Supreme Court. In Anchorage, I'm Rachel Cassandra. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.